Writing is cathartic? Of course it is. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 30, Overall Episode 153 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. This is where we talk about writing, spies, and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. I'm on a bit of a roll here in talking about writing yet again. Writing has been an important part of my life for most of my life. I can't remember when I've not been writing. It's gotten me through good times and bad, brought me out of darkness, and given me purpose. Writing can also be therapeutic. Why else do you think therapists always encourage you to journal? In the years after the Afghan and Iraq wars, when military members were coming back with severe PTSD, part of their readjustment was writing, not merely journaling, but encouragement to write their specific experiences, their specific stories. One of the most notable novels to come out of that was Kevin Powers' The Yellow Birds, a debut novel published in 2012. It won the National Book Award, the Guardian First Book Award, and the Hemingway Foundation slash Pen Award. He followed the Yellow Birds with A Shout in the Ruins and last year A Line in the Sand, all dealing with his Iraq War experiences. I read the Yellow Birds when it first came out, and it was a harrowing book to read. Great writing and a powerful story, but difficult to process. Indeed, for about a decade after the Yellow Birds, publishers wanted veteran stories, and the market got a bit oversaturated. However, it did help veterans to be open about their experiences, good and bad. I think a great many would agree with that because if they tell their stories in fiction, they can be brutally honest about what happened to them and what they did. Writing does help with processing trauma. I know that from experience. It took me many, many years before I could do it but I was eventually able to write about suicide and incorporate it on occasion in my fiction. I lost my father to suicide in 1982, and the unexpectedness, the suddenness, left deep wounds that I tried to fill with booze, drugs, and the wrong men. And once I could write about it, especially in fiction, those wounds began to close. Writing then saved my life. I could confront my trauma through the veil of fiction and finally heal. 
I'm not the first. I won't be the last, thankfully. This is the power of writing. Certainly not as traumatic as losing a parent to suicide, the 2016 election was painful for me. As a feminist since my teen years, I have cheered the success of every woman, with a few exceptions, in politics and look forward with excitement to the day this country would have a woman president. I thought 2016 was that time. An intelligent, successful, experienced woman candidate with an international reputation for toughness when needed and compassion when required, I felt sure Hillary Clinton was a shoe-in. That was the first time, and so far the only time, my political science knowledge failed me. I decided I'd had too much faith in the American electorate to see through the antics of a misogynistic, manipulative con man. I won't fall for that again. So what was the trauma in an election defeat, you ask? Well, it was traumatic because I knew what four years under the man whose name I still refuse to say or write, my bias, I'll own it, would do to this country. We had a sample of it seven months after his inauguration when white supremacists converged on Charlottesville, Virginia, to protest the removal of a Confederate statue from a public place. A torchlight parade where the white supremacists chanted either, you will not replace us or Jews will not replace us. A young black man badly beaten because he happened to be in the same parking garage with several of these cowards a young woman killed when a white supremacist deliberately drove his car into a crowd of peaceful counter-protesters. No, don't tell me they were violent Antifa. I know better. And this poisonous atmosphere culminated in an attempt to overthrow the government on January 6, 2021, when a mob of white supremacists egged on by the then President of the United States tried to stop the results of the 2020 election from being certified. For me, the 2016 election was the beginning of four-plus years of constant trauma. So much so, I stopped watching the news. So, how did I cope with it? I wrote a story titled, Who Watches the Watchmen? Most of my stories and novels up to that point had featured my characters during the Cold War or shortly thereafter. This was the first time I brought them forward into then-present day. In 2016, my character, Mai Fisher, is head of the directorate with Alexei Bukharin fully retired. In 2016, he's 73 years old, after all. The directorate is embroiled in the issue of Russian interference in the upcoming election. Then Mai discovers that someone on her executive staff has been providing classified information about the directorate's findings to the campaign of one Kermit Harlan, 
I generally change the names of public figures who are still alive, with a few exceptions. Mai deals with her traitor according to directorate protocols, and when she asks the traitor why, the response is, who watches the watchman? Mai, of course, knows it's her. The story was novelette size, so my editor took a crack at it, and after that I published it as a small paperback that I intended to give away at book events to get people interested. However, my editor and readers of the novelette pointed out it wasn't really finished. After dealing with her traitor, what does Mai do to protect the directorate from this incoming administration? So I wrote, Hidden Agendas, another novelette. If you think spies have hidden agendas, try politicians. In this case, the new administration wants to turn the directorate into its personal intelligence service to identify and eliminate anyone who is against the administration. Mai knows what she has to do to keep that from happening. Who Watches the Watchmen came out in late 2016 and Hidden Agendas in 2017. In 2020, another election year, I looked them both over and decided they'd fit into a single story, now novella size. So with some minor rewriting to link the two stories, I had what's now titled A Change for the Better. This is the novella I'm promoting for August, which I'll talk more about in commercial time. So how did writing these two stories, then merging them into a single work, heal my 2016 election trauma? I think it's mostly because Mai Fisher gets to take action to thwart the Kermit Harlan administration and denies them the tool they want to use to disrupt democracy. She becomes the Harlan administration's watchman with plans to disrupt all his hidden agendas. In my fictional world, then, someone I could trust would assure democracy would prevail. That's a bit of a cliché. But I and a lot of other Americans needed a cliché after the last four years of 2016 to 2020. And as an addendum, only two days ago, specific indictments about a conspiracy to change the results of a legitimate election so that former president could stay in power in order not to be indicted were filed. If the people responsible for this near coup are convicted in jail, that will go much further in healing the trauma the country suffered for four years. But writing about it helped tremendously. And yes, this is probably the most political I've been than in the previous 152 episodes. I won't apologize, but I'll tune it back a bit for my own sake later. And if you're on the other side of the political spectrum from me, I encourage you to write about your trauma. Maybe in researching, you'll realize 
you might be wrong. And now it's commercial time. The book I talked about, A Change for the Better, is on sale this entire month for only 99 cents for the ebook. By the way, the Zon is being a little slow. If you don't see it for 99 cents, but you should, wait a day or two and the price will update. Technology, you know. One reader of A Change for the Better messaged me to say he liked getting some backstory on the directorate itself, that is, that it had rules and regulations, which I focus on in the first half of the novella. I participated in several rulemaking projects in my federal career, and I had to have an in-depth knowledge of our regulations when dealing with airlines and pilots and other operators. So I was able to make up directorate protocols, rules and regulations, and use appropriately bureaucratic language. I'll post the link to a change for the better in the description of this episode. And now let me update you on the next book in the series Meeting the Enemy. Prologue to Rendition came back from my editor last week and needed not added scenes, but added bits to some scenes. Not many cases, and certainly not enough to hold up the mid-October publication date. So look for the pre-order to start around September 16th, and then Rendition, book four of, and the conclusion to Meeting the Enemy, will go to the editor in the second half of August, with a planned release date in time for holiday gift-giving. And commercial over. All right, let's have a reading from A Change for the Better, and I'll set it up a bit. Mai has been advised of the leak of the classified information by someone in the directorate, and that someone has been identified. It's important now that the trader not become aware that she knows. So things go along as usual in the morning staff meeting, except for one thing. Mai hasn't worn a gun in a long time since she's no longer operational. However, on this day, she makes an exception. And you'll have to pardon my Latin pronunciation. I know that no one really knows how to pronounce Latin, but I'm pretty sure I've probably butchered it. A Change for the Better, Chapter 13 Kiss Custodiad Ipsos Custodes Mai was proud of her executive staff. Of the two dozen people in the room, four knew besides Mai but no one blinked an eye the traitor's way, cast him a sly look, gave anything away with body language or tone of voice. She made a mental note to laud them for that. She wanted no future lapses in allegiance as a consequence of her discomfort in giving praise. The staff meeting came off as routine and uneventful. The topic of the FBI memo came up on the agenda. They discussed it without making an accusation or a connection. He'd ask questions, but
but none of them appeared to be an attempt to feel out anything about himself. No. She understood he'd convinced himself he'd pulled it off, that he'd put one over on her, which would make what happened here in a few minutes ever so much fun for her. They went through each agenda topic, making suggestions, giving direction, authorizing operations. She and the man she was about to accuse of treason even traded banter, as they did most meetings. The last agenda item concluded. Everyone gathered their tablets and phones, or any materials they'd brought. Discussion began about specific assignments, and they slipped from the room in twos and threes. Luther, stay for a moment, would you? Mai said. No one flinched, not even O. Luther Hunt, Mai's about-to-be former assistant director. She shifted her chair away from him and moved to the edge of the seat, giving her easier access to her gun. Hunt sat back down in the chair to her right and turned to her, his face serious but guileless. "'What's up, Mai?' he asked. She thought last night about what to say, believing she should be profound and her words should be meaningful and memorable. But when the moment arrived, she opted for simplicity. "'Did you think I wouldn't know?' Again, he almost pulled it off. His expression didn't change, but his eyes dipped away from hers for the barest of seconds. No, what? he asked. That you passed restricted information to the director of the FBI, which he then used in a Bush League attempt to affect the outcome of an election, one which, by the way, as you well know, I had an opportunity recently to alter and decided it was in the best interest of this organization not to. I... Don't know what you're talking about. Luther, surely someone told you not to fuck with me. If they didn't, allow me to explain in words you can understand. Do not fuck with me. He blinked in time with her last statement, but said nothing. She slid toward him the folder Mason Wallace had given her. Don't take my word for it, Mai said. Here are the items of proof. Shall we go each one? He gave her a strained smile. You know my penchant for bullet points. Summarize. Mai bristled at the imperious tone and realized how much it had annoyed her. She'd attributed it to his having been a prosecutor, but now she understood it was because he was an entitled asshole. That made her decision easier, and its burden lifted from her. Very well, she said. Copies of emails between you and the FBI director from your private email account to his, which I find has a certain irony, since this is all about a presidential candidate's use of private email for public business. A transcript of a phone call between you and the FBI director, photographs of your meet with him at the Martin Luther King Memorial, transcripts of his phone calls on a burner you provided from your supply, by the way, to Kermit Harlan's campaign manager and the chairpersons of several congressional committees. And that's only the beginning. Luther's eyes widened, but he remained silent. He'd been a U.S. attorney before his own brief tenure as the FBI director, but the Miranda warning had no meaning here. 
You bug the FBI director? Luther asked, his tone indignant. For you, now, that's need to know. And you don't anymore. The way you work, not ever, he said, his eyes narrowed at her. He opened the folder. After shuffling through the first few pages, he closed it again. I suppose you want my resignation, he said, and the smirk on his face made her hands ball into fists. No need. You're fired. Rather, you're relieved of your position per 5 UN Code Part 11, Section 3337B3. I'd like to say this was a good experience for me, but it wasn't. I'm aware of that. It wasn't for me either. Alexei was the one who offered you the bone. You didn't have to chew it. I thought it would be an opportunity to make a difference. My returned his smirk. No, you thought with such a forceful man as you as my assistant director, I'd lose my interest in this organization and retire to spoil grandchildren or knit or some such. You wanted to be in charge so you could make the directorate an arm of a political party in a single signatory. Yes, I read the emails between you and the Republican Party, and your journal on your home computer, too. You should have been patient, Luther. My retirement is a few years off yet, but you might have been the logical replacement. Well, since this is my exit interview, let me offer you some feedback, Hunt said. He pointed a finger at her, and Mai wanted to break it. You have too much power, and this whole organization operates hell exists around your supposed benevolence and wisdom, but you operate on whim. Did he not know how this worked, she thought. You answer to no one, he continued. Oh, yeah, technically you work for the Secretary General, but the fact he looks the other way on every fucking thing you do tells me you've got something on him. You're arrogant, self-important, you withhold trust, and you're the most cold-hearted bitch I've ever encountered. Mai smiled at him, and he blinked again. Your sexist opinion is noted, Luther, but it doesn't do much for you in mitigating the evidence against you. Not that I dispute much of what you said, except I don't have anything on the Secretary General. I'm lucky in that he and I see eye to eye on most things. That does give me a free reign, especially when it comes to dealing with employees— who are traitors. Dealing with... He broke off and swallowed hard, his throat making a gulping sound. Did you think you'd get to walk? That I'd overlook this so you could go get a cushy consulting job somewhere? He blinked yet again, but covered the nervousness that implied with a shaky laugh. <laughs> I've read the protocols. I get an arbiter. Bleeding Christ, Luther, what do you think I am? Hunt gave a barking laugh and shook his head. Figures. The protocols allow that, and trust me, Luther, what you've done hasn't endeared you to your peers. You're better off with me as judge and jury. An executioner? Oh, I wish. I bloody wish. But it's a good thing the FBI director was circumspect about where he received that juicy bit of information you gave him, and that your emails to Republicans were vague. If not we'd already be mopping your blood off the floor. He sucked in a breath through clenched teeth, but managed another blustering laugh. You can't do it. 
You like it better when you send other people out to shed blood, Fisher. Hell, you use drones to keep your manicure clean. My remembered all the time she'd clean blood from beneath her fingernails, but she suspected a telling of that would fall on deaf ears. I'm curious, she said. Why this? Why try to skew the election? Well, the last eight years have been bad enough. We, I, couldn't take four more. How obtuse, my thought, though it echoed white male sentiment in this country. You mean, the idea of a black president was awful enough, but a woman president was beyond the pale. Something like that, especially her. Luther, our data forensics has shown that the alleged sexting on that ex-congressman's laptop was likely planted by a Russian hacker, as were the alleged emails from Mrs. Randolph. Planted? Yes. You've sat in on the briefings. You know the Russians are trying to swing this election for Kermit Harlan, but you seized on partial information. Another example of your not sharing. I'll concede that. But I don't like being interrupted. It's a woman thing, I suppose. Yeah, we're awash in estrogen here. Okay, she was going to let that pass. It would do no good anyway. Well, then, Luther, if this is the way you felt, why on earth did you join the Abori administration when the president asked you? I deserved to be the FBI director. I'd put in the time, volunteered for all the right task forces. My record was impeccable. That job was my right. Then why agree to work for me? At the time, I thought it was the right thing to do. But it aided me. Every day since I gave up being the FBI director, the best job in the world, by the way, for a scheme you sold to the president. You volunteered for that, Luther. Hunt's face flushed red with anger, his eyes narrowing to unyielding slits, lips pursing so tight they were a thin slash of white. From between them he managed to push, but the goddamn bastard didn't try to talk me out of it. You do not use that language in front of me, Mai said, her Irish coming back up. Of course not. What else can we be in this diversity sinkhole but politically correct? All this time, harboring your grudges, why didn't you say something? Would you have listened? Yes, that's my job. His finger swipe launched sweat from his upper lip in an arc. You kept me and my vast knowledge and experience at arm's length, withheld information I should have had access to, turned aside my serious advice. Why? My intuition has always been good, Luther. It saved my life more than once, and my gut told me I couldn't trust you. Right again. A hunch! You set aside my opinions on a hunch! Instead, you rely on the counsel of one fucked-up dudette who can't figure out which way his, her dick swings. But that he-she is only one example of your bleeding heart ineptitude. I'm surrounded by affirmative action picks, not a single one of whom could hack it in the real world. Except for you, of course, my shot back, and all your straight, white, cisgender male privilege. Understand this, Luther. Paula Shaw is my personal fucking hero. Yes, because she's fucking authentic. She sacrificed everything for that authenticity. You're the one who can't figure out which way his dick swings, 
since you betrayed an oath the first chance you got. Luther grinned at her, his upper lip in a salacious sneer. Shaw's doing you, isn't he? Not getting much from the old man at home, so why not? My punched him, hard, in the nose, the impact sending pain lancing up her arm. His head snapped back, blood spurting from his nose across the file folder she'd given him. He started to stand, but Mai was on her feet first, and the Beretta was in her hand, as if her hand didn't hurt, as if it hadn't been years since she'd last drawn it. Sit down, she said. He settled back in the chair, a trickle of blood inching over his lips and off his chin to splatter on his crisp white shirt. I'll tell you a story, Mai said, and afterwards you can decide if I can pull the trigger or not. He glared at her, but the gun was a barrier between them. More than 20 years ago, an FBI assistant director pissed me off. In fact, he's probably why I considered that agency a hotbed of reactionary incompetence, drunk on position power, present company included. But pissing me off wasn't the issue. He'd decided he was a watchman, that he alone should decide who lived and who died, who was a criminal and who wasn't that his justice was the only kind to be meted out. Sounds like a man after my own heart. She moved her finger to the trigger, making sure Hunt saw it. Because of decisions he made in that vein, a man who'd fought for this country turned against it, and a great many people died. I'll even admit to you they died because I didn't kill that misguided soldier when I had the chance. That was my guiding principle in this business, Luther. I would never be an assassin. I would never kill in cold blood. Now I have killed. Unlike some operatives, I've never kept count. So I have no idea how many except it was too many. I stopped moralizing over it when I put that former FBI assistant director's own gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. Hunt shrank from her, and she let herself savor that a moment. Don't think... I haven't fantasized in the past day about adding a notch for a former FBI director on my gun's grips. She holstered the Beretta and said, Here's my decision as arbiter. You'll be extraordinarily rendered to a prison the directorate contracts with and will be held there in solitary confinement for the rest of your natural life. My, my girlfriend, my daughter. I'll arrange a cover story, something heroic which you don't deserve, but no need for them to know what a coward you are. Mason's men will be in shortly to remove you. There'll be restraints and blindfolds until you're safely tucked away in a cell. I'd cooperate if I were you. They don't have my qualms. Like hell I'll cooperate. Fuck them. Fuck you. You'll cooperate. Yeah, bitch. Try me. Did you know I have assets in the Russian Mafia? Well... You wouldn't, because I didn't share that either. Cooperate, or I'll have them send some of their compatriots to your home and your daughter's dormitory room. How did you put it in your journal about me? Ah, yes. What the bitch needs is for someone to gang-rape some sense into her, literally. Hunt paled so much, my thought he might pass out. One question, Hunt said, his voice shaky. I nodded. Who are you if not a watchman? I never said I wasn't. 
Luther found his backbone and stiffened in his chair, eyes locked with hers. Kis custodiat, ipsos custodis, he asked. One of her childhood tutors had insisted she have a working knowledge of Latin for some obscure, thoroughly British reason. Who watches the watchman? My left him alone with the unspoken answer. Enough, more than enough for today. Remember, look for a Change for the Better ebook on Amazon for only 99 cents. This weekend, I'm off to Richmond for the Virginia Writers Club Annual Symposium, which has workshops and panels on various aspects of writing, publishing, and marketing. I'm always looking for some help in any of those areas. And the other thing I'm looking for? Well, you know it. While I'm there, I'll be keeping an eye out for spies. Because, you know, who watches the Watchmen? The proceeding has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Join us next week for a new episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. And, Kojin din yadumuyu pro ukrainyo. Every day, I think of Ukraine.